a great tzaddik called the Mitla Rebbe became the target of jealousy and false accusations. The Russian government had him arrested. How did it happen? How was the life of a God-fearing devoted chassid used to accuse the Rebbe of wrongdoing? Was he liberated? Stay tuned to Upheaval in Lubavitch. In the late 1790s, a short but powerful military leader called Napoleon took over France. Within a few years, he conquered many countries, while his thirst for power and glory grew even more. In the summer of 1812, Napoleon decided to invade Russia. This was the beginning of one of the most famous battles ever fought. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman, had been living in Liadi, a small city in White Russia. He felt very strongly that Russia must be victorious in this war. For if, God forbid, Napoleon would win, the result would not be good. He would improve life physically by abolishing some Russian restrictions on Jewish people, and there would be less poverty. However, Napoleon's rule would lead to the spiritual decline of Russian Jewry by his efforts to assimilate Jewish people and to distance their hearts from our Father in Heaven. If Russia will win, Jews will remain poor but better off spiritually, and that is far more important. The Alta Rebbe sent letters to Jewish communities urging them to support the Tsar and the Russian army, pay not attention to the temporary victories of the enemy, for the ultimate victory will be on our side. Some of the Alta Rebbe's Hasidim served as spies who gathered information from the French army and secretly delivered their plans to Russian army generals. When Napoleon's army reached close to Liadi, the Alter Rebbe finally agreed that it's time to flee from the area. His family and some Hasidim packed whatever they could take with them and set off in wagons pulled by horses. The next 140 days were spent traveling from town to town through the bitter cold Russian winter with little protection from the wind and snow. On Friday, the eighth day of Teves, they arrived at a village called Piena. By this time, they were very happy to hear that Baruch Hashem, Napoleon's army, had been defeated and they were on their way out of Russia. Piena had many empty houses since so many of their men were fighting at the war front. The citizens of Piena kindly accepted the refugees by offering them free apartments and firewood. We will stay here for a while, the Alter Rebbe decided. He called two of his sons, Rabbi Doivber, Reb Chaim Avraham, and Reb Pinchas Reises. Rabbi Doivber, like his father, had blonde hair and a blonde beard, and he was a little shorter than his father, the Alter Rebbe, whose beard had grayed. His younger brother, Reb Chaim Avraham, was taller than him and the Alter Rebbe. Reb Pinchas was one of the most well-known Hasidim. Let us develop a plan to assist the Jewish refugees in White Russia who have lost property and money to the enemy army. As the enemy retreats, they will surely plunder more communities. We will stay in this area of small Russia and Ukraine in the meantime. To prevent a great price rise with a sudden demand for apartments, let's divide our group into three parts. Some of us should go live in the city of Hadich. Another group to the city of Kremichuk, and the third group 
to the city called Romani. Rabbi Dovbe, please travel to these cities and find affordable housing. Rabbi Chaim Avram, please set out to the cities of Poltava and Kherson to raise funds to help the Jewish communities who have suffered by the enemy army passing through their towns. And you, Repinchas, please go to Vitebsk and organize a committee to assist those local refugees and find ways to help them get settled in a way that they will soon be able to support themselves as they used to. Certainly, Rebbe. Only days after his two sons and Repinchas left to fulfill their Shlichus missions, the Alter Rebbe fell ill on Monday, the 11th day of Teves. Each day, he became weaker and sicker, and on Metzoi Shabbos Kodesh, Parsha Shmois, 24th of Teves, he passed away. The middle Rebbe was in Kremetschuk, and when he found out what happened, he fell to the ground. For several days, he felt very broken, and his spirit very low. He later thanked a chassid called Rabbi Yomin Klatzker for helping him gradually regain his spirit and return to himself. While Hasidim all over Russia were very sad about the Rebbe's passing, they were somewhat comforted knowing that, the, that Rabbi Dover is worthy of filling his father's position and becoming the new Rebbe. Hasidim gathered at Fabringen in many cities and wrote heartfelt requests asking him to accept the new position. There was also a struggle over where the Rebbe will settle. Liadi, where the Alt Rebbe had lived, was in ruins, and they had no place to return to. One group wanted the Rebbe to remain where he was, in the Kremetschuk area, in Ukraine. The other group requested that the Rebbe re return to White Russia, his homeland and birthplace. Meanwhile, the Mittler Rebbe and Hasidim of Kremetschuk sent six carriages to bring his mother, Rebbe Tzinsterna, and some of the families to better housing in Kremetschuk instead of the cramped, smoke-filled houses they were living in in Piana. One of his son-in-laws, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, who later became known as the Tzemach Tzedek, and his family remained in the city of Hadich, where the Alter Rebbe was buried. The Mittler Rebbe wanted to stay in Kremetschuk until the summer because it would be difficult for the women and children in the group to travel during the harsh winter weather. After celebrating Pesach and Shavuos in Kremetschuk, the Rebbe let it be known that he would return to his homeland, White Russia, and would settle in the small town called Lubavitch. The Russian government was well aware that the Alter Rebbe had supported the Tsar's army generals with intelligence, his influence, and, of course, with his prayers. When they heard the Alter Rebbe's son and successor was going to move back to White Russia, they wanted to express their appreciation. An order was issued by the interior minister in Petersburg addressed to the cities the Rebbe and his group would travel through. Receive them with the greatest respect. Provide them with respectable lodging and change their horses and wagons. The Rebbe left Kremetschuk after Shavuos with his mother, Rebetzin Sterna, his wife, Rebetzin Shena, two or three sons, three unmarried daughters, four married daughters with their husbands and families, some cousins, and many Hasidim. 
Some Hasidim traveled the entire long journey by foot. They stopped in many cities along the way. Sure enough, they were greeted with respect and enthusiasm by both Jewish and Russian citizens. The Rebbe delivered Ma'amorim Hasidic discourses and set hours for people to come see him for private audiences called Yechidis. Shklov was one of the cities they stopped in. The Rebbe called aside the community leaders, namely Reb Pinchas Rezes, his brother-in-law Reb Zalman Rezes, Reb Shlem Freides, and others. You probably heard that our homes and the shul and liadi have all burned down. We will need money to build houses and a new shul. Please help our entire family and contribute money to help us start life. The leaders mobilized and a major fund drive was had began throughout the city. Hasidim and non-Hasidim contributed generously. Similar efforts were made in other cities as well. The last major stop was in Vitebsk, a fairly large city where the Altarebbe had married and lived in for a while. It was in the middle of the month of Elul when they spent Shabbos in the Yojna where the Altarebbe and Mittlerebbe had lived for many years. On Monday, the auspicious day of 18th Elul, which only later became known as the birthday of both the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe, the group arrived in the small town called Lubavitch. The Rebbe led the group to an empty clearing where it was noticeable that a structure had once stood. In fact, there had been a devastating fire that destroyed a number of buildings and houses just two years earlier. He addressed the crowd. Fifty-eight years ago, my father, the Rebbe, came to Lubavitch when he was ten years old to learn with the Tzaddik and Chassid Rebbe Sachadov. They studied Torah in a shul that stood on this spot. When I prepared to set out on this journey, my father and master appeared to me and instructed me to establish my home on this plot. He also blessed Lubavitch to be the home of Chabad leaders for long days and years. Note, the tradition in the Rebbe's family was that when the Alter Rebbe used the term Arichus Yamim Vishonim, long days and years, it meant at least 100 years. This indeed came true, and the Bavitch was the center of Chabad for the next 102 years. The Russian Count Tchaikovsky owned Lubavitch and other surrounding villages. The Count was very happy that Rebbe chose one of his cities. He issued an order to his estate managers, cut down trees and bring building beams from our forests to be used to build houses for the Rebbe and his family. The Rebbe oversaw the building of a new shul, which at the time was considered very large. People would jest that the shul was so big that you can begin praying hoidu, the beginning of morning prayers in the east side of the shul and conclude the prayers with Elenu when you reach the west side of the shul. The Rebbe's public Shabbos discourses, which Hasidim call Ma'amorim, were very well received by Hasidim. Hasidus the Alt Rebbe had taught was understood by highly educated gifted students, but due to the depth and brief style of the Alt Rebbe, Average Hasidim and visitors had not fully mentally digested 
the deep concepts of Hasidus. The Middle Rebbe explained Hasidus at great length and brought down Hasidus to average Jewish people. Later, Chabad Rebbeim compared the Alt Rebbe's Hasidus to a flowing spring and the Middle Rebbe's Hasidus to the spring becoming a wide flowing river. The news that the Rebbe settled in Lubavitch and was teaching Hasidus in his unique style generated a lot of excitement. People came from all over Russia and Lithuania. According to Hasidic elders, during the first year, 1814, the number of Hasidim multiplied three or four times more than during the Alt Rebbe's time to a total of 15,000 Hasidim. By the year 1815, the entire Chernigov area became Chabad Hasidim. Once, a Russian doctor called Hyventhal was on his way to visit a friend who lived near Lubavitch. He decided to check out the Rebbe and Hasidim. Hyventhal walked into the shul while the Rebbe was speaking. He could not believe his eyes. The Hasidim were listening with the greatest concentration as if they were glued to their spots. It was so totally silent that you could hear breathing. Hasidim who had their eyes or mouths open when the Rebbe began speaking remained in the exact position, almost frozen, for the entire time of the discourse. Dr. Hyventhal was deeply impressed because he felt holiness along with the spiritual devotion and attachment of Hasidim. The Rebbe, following the examples of his father, the Alter Rebbe, and back to the Balshamtov, was very concerned with the physical welfare of Russian Jews. Due to the recent war, the economy was beaten and there was a lot of poverty in the Jewish community. Making it even more difficult, the Russian government was not very business friendly and on top of that imposed extra taxes on Jewish businesses. The Rebbe planned to establish farm colonies to settle Jewish farming families. In the year 1815, the Russian Tsar Alexander was visiting Babinovich, a city near Lubavitch. The Rebbe asked his younger brother, Reb Moshe, to join him on a trip to meet the Tsar. Reb Moshe, a gifted linguist who spoke several languages fluently, served as the translator between the Rebbe and the Tsar. Your Majesty, I propose that the government grant us a large tax-free plot of land and I will find at least 2,000 farmers to live on it. If this finds favor in your eyes, please let the section be in the outskirts of Vitebsk. Tsar Alexander liked the idea. Yes, I will issue an order to expedite the process. This way, it will not have to wait for approval from the Senate. However, I will grant this plot only in minor Russia near the city Kherson. The Tsar was very impressed with the Rebbe and several times during the audience referred to the Rebbe as the great dear Rabbi. Although the Rebbe was so well respected and treated by the Tsar and government officials, he did not feel protected by them. He later remarked, In the heavenly court there is no forgetting, but in the earthly kingdom and government there is no memory. Sometime in the year 1824, Repinchas Rezis of Shklov, while visiting Lubavitch, 
passed away and was buried there. The Rebbe himself followed his funeral procession and called it a Pinchas, the field marshal of Hasidim. Reb Pinchas accomplished many great things in his lifetime, and that is a story in itself. One thing Reb Pinchas and his wife were not blessed with was to be parents. They died childless. A relative found some personal papers in his house and passed them on to evil people who used the name of Reb Pinchas for lies against the Rebbe. In 1824, Tsar Alexander, although not yet old, fell ill and died. He was succeeded by his younger brother, Nikolai, or Nicholas, who was well known for his cruelty. Meanwhile, in the city of Vitebsk, there lived a well-to-do individual called Simcha Kissen. Mr. Kissen was a distant relative of the Rebbe's mother's family, but he and others envied the Rebbe's honor and influence. Simcha smiled when he received the envelope of documents from the late Reb Pinchas. I can get the Rebbe in trouble with these papers, he thought. He wrote several letters in Russian to Nikolai Chavansky, governor of Vitebsk. Here are the main points, but not the exact translation. To the great kind master, a few decades ago, a new Jewish sect called Karlinists surfaced. At first, they had a very small membership. However, they succeeded in drafting many light-headed young men and attracted them with alcoholic beverages, especially vodka. When Jewish community elders saw the damage the sect was causing and that their actions opposed both Judaism and human decency, they attempted to put a, an end to this group. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful, and the group continued to grow. One of their faults is that they teach all people are equal, and no one deserves to be respected. As a result, their followers are disrespectful to teachers and spiritual leaders other than their own. When they started to focus their recruitment efforts on young men who live at home, it sparked family arguments and the destruction of peaceful family life. Their main targets are wealthy individuals. The group leaders convince the youngsters that if they will bring in a lot of money, the leaders will pray to God to forgive their sins. It is no wonder that with this incentive to escape civil and divine punishment, the young men did everything to find and deliver money including robbing their own parents. The group also introduced their own knives for, for ritual animal slaughter called Shechita and thereby separated themselves from the Jewish community. They only buy meat from their own Shachtim and they boycott the regular Shachtim, thus denying them the right to earn an honest living. To boost their membership, they tell made-up miraculous stories about their Rebbe. Permit me to bring to your attention that in December 1804, Tsar Alexander established a law which in paragraph 52 states, Whereas the rabbinic leadership is an honorable position and not for profit, the rabbis are strictly forbidden to impose taxes 
or demand money from their community. The rabbis must suffice with the salary which their, their community has decided upon. Paragraph 53. If there is a split in a community and it reaches the point that one group does not want to be together with another in the same synagogue, the break-off group has the right to build their own synagogue and appoint their own rabbi. However, every city must remain one Jewish community. This group has taken advantage of paragraph 53 and have spread out to establish their own synagogues in several cities. When their late Rebbe, Rabbi Zalman Baruchovich, was arrested and sent to the capital Petersburg, they raised an enormous amount of funds for his release efforts. All of this wealth has passed down to his son, their current Rebbe. Under his leadership, they have taken over community positions and replaced the true Jews. In the city of Shklov, they tried to take over a room in the large synagogue building. Their financial network is well developed and they have, they have their own printing press for prayer books which are in a different style than ours and have thereby made it more difficult for the true Jews to have enough new sidurim locally and instead the true Jews are forced to import prayer books from distant cities. They also exploit their control of printing presses to produce books about made-up miracles. This is only a small fraction of their harmful activities. With great humility, I permit myself to plead to the government to use all means possible to pursue and wipe out this group. The government ought to issue a new law to forbid break-off groups from the true Jews to establish a presence in a regular large synagogue. The group should also be forbidden to run their own meat shachtim. One of their el elders and a close friend of the current Rebbe, Pinchas Shik, otherwise known as Pinchas Rezis, begged me to delay filing a complaint against the group. Give me a year to get, to get things in order by convincing the Rebbe to stop disturbing the true Jews, he told me. As collateral for his promise, he gave me an envelope of documents which revealed details about their finan massive financial network and the great sums they have raised. If they do not change within a year, Pinchas remarked, then you have my permission to bring these matters to the attention of government officials and ask them to intervene to put an end to their illegal activities which are against the law and the Jewish community. Pinchas made a trip to Lubavitch to attend a business fair and to convince the Rebbe. Unfortunately, he died suddenly. The Rebbe not only did not heed the advice of Pinchas, but also became even more brazen and intensified his activities. At this point, I have no other option than to present the original documents with an accurate translation. These documents prove the rabbis lost for money. The enormous amount of money he raised is for the most part not spent on community needs. The rabbi disperses the money to his relatives as he decides. I plead to your excellence to get involved to protect us and free our community 
from this harmful group. It is clear from these documents that the enormous amount of money raised by the late leader and his successor was spent on the personal desires and vanities of the rabbi. The true Jews did not participate in these contributions. Moreover, the group sent messengers to raise this money without the permission and approval of the true Jews. Signed, your loyal servant, Simcha Kissen, dated June 1825. During Cholomite Sukkot, Hasidim and Vitebsk were in the middle of a joyous fabrengen in a sukkah when one Hasid came running. Did you hear? The governor wants to arrest the Rebbe. It was hard to believe. A delegation composed of both Jewish community leaders and Russian landowners approached the governor's office. The governor received them. Yes, uh, it is true. But it is really just for some questioning. They pleaded. If the Rebbe must come to Vitebsk, at least please send respectable officers to notify him to go to Vitebsk, but not to have the Rebbe arrested as a prisoner. The governor nodded. Fine. Granted. A few days later, senior ranking officers arrived in Lubavitch and approached the Rebbe's home. They spoke to the Rebbe respectfully. Please come with us to the governor in Vitebsk. You can plan your travel schedule according to your health needs. The Rebbe's doctors were consulted since he had a weak heart and unhealthy lungs. They ruled. It is not healthy for the Rebbe to be traveling in the cold weather for long periods of time. The trip should be broken up into a few days. Hasidim received permission to escort the Rebbe on his journey. The night before the Rebbe left, Lubavitch was hysterical. Men and women were praying along with much crying and, scream and screaming, while some Hasidim even fainted. The only one calm was the Rebbe himself. Totally at peace, he followed his regular schedule. He received visitors for Yechidus and had the presence of mind to spend time writing his recent public mimer. Early Sunday morning after prayers, the Rebbe called for his son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, and they spoke privately for around two hours. At 11 o'clock a.m., the Rebbe and his son, Reb Nachum, went out and climbed onto the wagon attached to, to six horses. A slight smile was seen on the Rebbe's glowing face. When the carriage left, many wagons followed, as well as hundreds of people by foot. Upon arriving at the first village of Berezovka, they were greeted by all their citizens who were standing behind their village elder. As a symbol of respect and blessing, they were holding bread and salt. The same scene repeated itself at the next two, villi two villages. In the Baramasil, Reb Nachum announced that the Rebbe will proceed directly to the large shul. They davened Mincha in the small shul and then entered the large synagogue where the Rebbe delivered a Hasidic mimer on the verse Maim Rabbim. When the group reached Liyajna, they also went to the shul and the Rebbe delivered another mimer, a continuation of the first. Suddenly, the Hasidim were saddened as government officers announced orders from Vitebsk.
The Rebbe and his son may choose only three more people to escort them on the last segment to Vitebsk. No one else is allowed to follow them in wagons or by foot. Any transgressors will be severely punished. It was obvious to Hasidim, as they were getting closer to Vitebsk, that the influence of the slanderers against the Rebbe was getting stronger. Hasidim hoped that Dr. Heiventhal, who had the greatest respect for the Rebbe, would be able to improve the situation. All Hasidim left to Vitebsk that night as the Rebbe and his few escorts stayed in the Yozhna. They were watched by armed guards to make sure no one gets close to the house. The next morning, after prayers, they continued the trip, escorted only by the guards. Meanwhile, thousands of Hasidim were gathered in Vitebsk waiting for the Rebbe's arrival. However, they did not merit to greet the Rebbe. He was brought directly to a government courtyard and assigned to remain in a house there. The only relief to Hasidim came at nine o'clock at night when Dr. Heiventhal approached them. I have some good news. Yesterday, I spoke to the governor and convinced him to let the Rebbe be held in a guarded house instead of a prison. The Rebbe and his son have arrived safely. The officials permitted me to see the Rebbe and conduct a medical examination. I treated his fever which he caught from traveling in the cold weather. The Hasidim were glad to hear the report, but they pleaded, Doctor, you have already helped us so much, but now we have lost all contact with the Rebbe. Can you please secure permission for us to pray with the Rebbe and to be able to visit him to hear his Torah? Dr. Heiventhal was not able to provide quick results. For the next two weeks, no one knew what was happening with the Rebbe. Each day, one of the Hasidim was allowed to deliver food to the house. One of the three Hasidim with the Rebbe would then come out escorted by a guard. They would bring out the used dishes and pans to exchange them for fresh food. Not a word was spoken at these quick exchanges. On Thursday, 16th day of Mar Cheshvan, Dr. Heiventhal invited Hasidim to his office. Heiventhal looked happy. Good news. On Tuesday, Governor Chavansky held a big party. Many important guests arrived for the celebration, including his close friends, Count, Counts Libermirsky and Sekrat. They told the governor that the Rebbe is loved by Jews and Russians alike and being an honest holy man he ought to be treated better they spoke to him again yesterday and i also explained to the governor just as people must eat to live the rebbe as a holy spiritual leader draws health from teaching torah the rebbe is weak and not well and he is simply healthier when he teaches torah to his people finally the governor agreed to let the Rebbe have a minion for the three daily prayers with up to 20 visitors and to deliver Hasidic Ma'amorim twice a week with no more than 50 visitors present. News of this announcement spread quickly and Hasidim immediately arranged raffles to choose the 20 visitors for each of the three daily prayers. On each of the following Shabbos afternoons, the Rebbe delivered Hasidic Ma'amorim 
while exiled under house arrest, just as he, as he normally did in Lubavitch. Of course, the lucky 50 Hasidim later carefully orally transmitted the teachings to the other eagerly waiting Hasidim. The Rebbe was called for several interrogations which centered on the document found with the late Rebbe Pinchas Rezis. The Hebrew document was written by the Rebbe and signed by Pinchas, Binyamin, and Shlema. It described how the Rebbe decided to divide and distribute the money collected in 1813. Amounts were listed to be given to all family members, including the Alter Rebbe's grandchildren. Here are the main parts of the interrogations. Question. Where did you get the money which you dispersed to your relatives? In 1812, when the enemy forces reached close to the city Dubrovna, my father left all this property and his valuable library in Liadi. Our entire family, myself included, fled deeper into Russia as a result of our strong connection and love for our Russian homeland. We couldn't bear the thought to live under French rule. When the French army arrived, they plundered the remaining citizens and set our property on fire. They caused us a 60,000 ruble loss. Later, we turned to the Russian military leader for help, but he was not able to assist us. For the next six months, we wandered under difficult conditions until God took from us our crown, my father's, my father, God's servant. He was buried in Hatich in the Potava region. My family was in utter poverty. When the master of the world revealed his wonders and the great generous Tsar expelled the French enemy from the Russian border, the news of my father's passing reached the Jews of white Russia. Their hearts were moved and they wrote to me in Kremichuk requesting that I return to white Russia and serve as the Rebbe in my father's place. They did this recognizing that during my father's lifetime I would help him in instructing and educating Hasidim. I also used to explain his sermons to the public. Since I inherited his good qualities and his fair sense of justice, they wanted me to return. The group accepted upon themselves to support all the needs of our family. However, I knew the situation there and that they would not have the means to provide essentials such as building new homes and a large shul which would be necessary. On the other hand, I was reluctant to turn them down and forget the kindness they had shown to my father during his lifetime there. I also did not want to forsake my birthplace. I decided to travel through Volin, Ukraine, and Lithuania, and God, with His great compassion, inspired the hearts of all Jews Hasidim and non-Hasidim, in all places I requested help. In each city, Jewish leaders raised money for us. When we finally arrived in White Russia, the community kept their promise they had written in their letter. I say with a clear conscience that all the contributions totaled 35,000 rubles. This sum was dispersed among family members based on their need for clothes, housing and basic necessities. The money from that special collection 
sustained our family for around half a year. Question. Why do you not suffice with your salary and against the law you raise money from Hasidim for your personal and extended use? It is known among dozens of thousands of Hasidim that none of them pays a rabbi a salary nor are taxes imposed upon anyone. Rather, each Hasid voluntarily contributes as they please based on their financial situation each year. This is different than the regular structure of a community that hires a rabbi and pays him an annual salary. Hasidic rabbis do not have any authority to force someone to pay a tax or to contribute money. This is how my late father served as rabbi for 30 years in White Russia. Out of necessity, I was forced to seek special help in 1813 only to relieve our situation. Question. How much money is raised annually for your family, extended family, the shul, and other expenses? The sum varies every year, based on whatever pe people contribute. In recent years, as the economy is low, the donation sum totals have been around 10,000 rubles, and even at best of times, only 16,000 rubles. All of these donations are received from people who were connected to me as they were to my late father. Most of them live in White Russia and Minsk, while a small minority are from Volin and Ukraine. My family and I use only one-third of the, of the money, and the rest is given to other family members in accordance to a promise I had made years ago. Question. How do you raise money? Do you do it yourself or through other appointed people? When I travel to places where I was invited to lecture or to settle disputes or to family events, some people give me donations as they choose. This money is divided as described earlier. Some donations arrive from distant places. However, I do not have accounting books recording the donations. Sometimes I ask people to travel to certain cities. For example, last year, I asked Binyamin Rabinowitz of Shklov and Avraham from Neville to make trips to nearby cities. The messengers give me the money they collect and I divide it. The people I send never presented me an account since I trust them completely beyond any shadow of doubt. Question. It seems from, from your own handwritten account that the amount you distributed among your relatives totaled only 35,000 ruble, which appears to be only one-fourth of the total sum raised, which was 140,000 ruble. What did you do with the other three-quarters of the money? As I read the Russian translation, I am shocked and the hair of my head raised. How was such a tremendous mistake made in the translation to say that the 35,000 ruble raised was only one-fourth of the total? The entire amount was 35,000 ruble. This amount was given to Pinchas from Shklov as the trustee to disperse as recorded. In fact, the document itself proves that the total amount was 35,000 ruble. According to your erroneous translation,
140,000 rubles was raised. I have never seen such a sum, and it is simply a mistake in your translation. If you will present me the original document, I am certain that I can find the source of this mistake. I trust in God that the truth will be revealed and the lies will not be accepted. Twelve years have passed since then, and I cannot recall all the details. However, I do remember clearly that the total amount was around 35,000 rubles. I therefore humbly request you present me my original handwritten document with your translation. I hope I can find the source of the mistaken translation. Question. What is the nature of the secret oath mentioned in the end of the document? I will reveal the entire truth behind this document. The background is this. Soon after my Holy Father's passing, my brothers and other family members approached me in tears, pleading to divide money raised similar to the way our Father would share the donations he received. They specifically asked me to divide the total amount in a manner by which I would only receive one-third of the amount. Although I have higher expenses than them, and despite the fact that the money was collected for my family, I acted with great compassion beyond the call of duty and agreed to their request. I kept this a secret out of concern, out of concern lest Hasidim find out and would disagree that my immediate family received only a small portion of the funds they contribute. Therefore, I insisted that the distribution be executed quietly through Pinchas. No one else saw the document except for the witnesses. I wrote in the document that in order to cause pleasure to my father and as a form of personal atonement for a private matter known to Pinchas, I accepted an oath upon myself that I would in the future continue to disperse money received in the same manner. As a result, now too, I only receive 35%. For example, from 100 ruble, I receive 35 ruble, and from 10 ruble, 3.5 ruble. Question. Did the three witnesses, Pinchas, Zalman, Rezin, and Schlemmer Freyden, all participate in the money distributions? Well, Pinchas was the sole trustee and he executed the distributions. The other two men were there only as signing witnesses for the oath mentioned. It is possible that his brother-in-law Zalman did assist him. I doubt, though, that Shlema Freyden participated since he was ill at the time. When the interrogators finally showed the Rebbe the original record, he explained the precise meaning of the paragraph in question which, which states, The money disbursement of funds raised with the help of God by the efforts of Rabbi Berka Zalmanovich Schneer, combined with the steady donations which consist of one-fourth of this total sum. The money which was given to Pinchas of Shklov to disperse consisted of two types of monies. The first was money raised by the special collection following the fire and devastation of our homes. These funds were raised by my efforts and travels at the time.
The second category consisted of steady small donations received from individuals who donate the same amount every year. These people used to send their voluntary donations to my late father. When I was in Kremitschuk after his passing, these Hasidim wrote to me that they commit themselves to continue sending these donations to me as my father's successor, although they are not obligated to do so in any way. This second type of money received was only was around 10,000 ruble, which was one-fourth of the total amount, 35,000 ruble. There was never any other money involved. If it would say one-fourth of the total, there may be room to err that there was an additional amount of money. However, it states clearly one-fourth of this total sum, meaning that the steady donations were one-fourth of the total sum collected and given to Pinchas. This is the entire truth, and this is evident from the language used to anyone familiar with the, Russian, with the Hebrew language. In order to substantiate what is said here, and to clear all doubts, I hereby swear, in accordance to religious custom, that I never had more than 35,000 rubles. Zalman, brother-in-law of Pinchas, can testify to this, that there was no more money. I affix my signature. Question. You mentioned in your account about the preparations and expense of building a grand synagogue. Explain more about these expenses. The synagogue we built in the Babich cost 6,000 rubles. Four Torah scrolls written on parchment cost 1,500 rubles. Crystal chandeliers, Aran Kodesh, and other items were 500 rubles. Various Jewish books went up to 3,000 rubles. Since the construction took place over an extended time period, I cannot say with certainty what percentage of these expenses were paid by the 35,000 ruble collected beforehand and how much of it was covered by donations received after we arrived in Lubavitch. The Rebbe had seven beautiful daughters, a number of whom were already married. One of the girls traveled to the governor in Vitebsk to plead for her father's freedom. Governor Chavansky, in his vanity, so pleased with her presence, asked her to return several times as he had questions related to the case to discuss. However, one day, one of Chavansky's assistants mentioned to a Jewish man that the governor is delaying the case because he so delights the opportunity to lay his eyes on the Rebbe's daughter. When she found out about this, she never again returned to his office. Early in the month of Kislev, the Rebbe wrote a discourse called Bad Kodesh to be translated and delivered to Governor Chavansky. In it, he describes the divine attributes and defines the role of Malchus, kingdom. Kings and rulers are granted by God to administer true justice. He concluded saying, Since the governor is a high official, I implore you to personally review my case so that you will see the truth of my innocence. On Shabbos, ninth day of Kislev in the afternoon, 
fifty Hasidim stood in front of the Rebbe, who was deeply engrossed in his public, in his discourse, a mimer, on the phrase, Atta Echad, you are one, words from the Shabbos afternoon prayer referring to God. An officer approached with good news. The rabbi may return home. Hasidim danced and sang, and on Sunday, Yud Kislev, the 10th day of Kislev, they happily escorted the Rebbe back home to Lubavitch. This freedom was only partial, because the case was not over. He was permitted to go home as the investigation would continue. Governor Chavansky, influenced by evil stirrers, or perhaps on his own account, tried very hard to prosecute the Rebbe. When regional courts issued a ruling in favor of the Rebbe, he protested by demanding the case be brought to yet a higher court. Chavansky also launched new attacks against the Rebbe. How dare he act as a civil judge to settle cases between Jewish people, charged Chavansky. He also complained, by law, a minister must be fluent in Russian or German, both of which are quite foreign to the rabbi. He should therefore be disbarred from serving as a rabbi. The rabbi's fundraising ought to be outlawed. They should, he should settle for a fixed salary instead of raising money freely. In short, Chavansky attempted to charge the rabbi with any crime he could think of. If this would not succeed, he at least fought for limiting the Chabad movement by not letting them operate with financial independence. The highest court finally exonerated the Rebbe and cleared him from all charges just days after his health declined quickly and he passed away on Tess, 9th day of Kislev, Tovkov Pechas, in November 1827. The book Beis Rebbe tells that years later, the once powerful instigator Simcha Kissen lost his wealth, became poor, and then homeless. He took to heavy drinking and wandered through the streets drunk. Chassidim would gather to Fabreng on Yud Kislev, and Kissen would show up. You owe it to me. I brought you this joy, he claimed. Pay me back. Hasidim responded to his twisted logic by politely filling his cup with some vodka and he would fall asleep in the middle of the words of Torah, singing and dancing.